Morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Adam Romans. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter and to the second chapter. This morning we'll be reading verses 11 through 17. And uh, you can find this morning's reading on page 1015 as uh, we will be reading some uh, very, what some might consider, challenging uh, words from Scripture. Uh, something that doesn't necessarily sit really well in America or read very well in America, especially at the present moment, given our political tensions uh, that we're all experiencing. And when we come to awkward passages of the Scripture, I guess as a pastor, I really have two options. Number one, to totally avoid it and ignore it as if this section never even existed, which on some occasions I am tempted to take that option. But the second option is to just run our way through it, to make our way through it, to allow God's Word to inform our daily conduct. And so it is to this second option uh, that we'll be taking this morning. So follow along as I read beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him who, uh, pun to punish those to do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God for your life, uh, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and as we read these words, we recognize the difficulty that is represented in actually applying these words in the 21st century in modern America. But we believe your word to be true, and we, we believe that you have not made a mistake. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray, and help us to see these words, to take them as they are. And may the Holy Spirit help us to apply these words to our life. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. I'm going to be honest with you. I lost a little bit of sleep last night as I began to think about how uh, this morning might go. I was filled with a little bit of fear. And the fear that I have is that you might say, uh, take what I say this morning as being political. And what I have to say is some type of political jargon. But I hope that you don't hear what I say this morning as political jargon, but as biblical truth. It seems as though in our modern day society, so much of our life is interpreted through a political lens. And the very fact that I have to preface my comments by saying that so much of life is taking through uh, a political lens 
And, and, and the fact that I have to say that this morning's talk should not be taken as political but biblical pretty much proves my point. I was reading an article this past week that was very long-winded but very helpful. I didn't agree with all of it, but I thought it to be very insightful. The, the uh, article came through The Atlantic, and it, was, and it was entitled, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. Again, it was a long read, but well worth the investment of time. It really tells the story of two very different pastors who have approached modern-day ministry in two very different ways. Both of these pastors were from the state up north, which is a state I shall never mention from this pulpit. <laughs> I finally got an amen out of somebody. Uh, it took a long time to get it, but thank you. But, but these pastors couldn't be, uh, could not be approaching things any different than what they are. They, I, think, I think if my memory serves me correctly, something like three miles separate these two men and their churches. One pastor spends a significant amount of time in the service working through what we might call uh, conservative talking points, much to the pleasure of his applauding congregation. The other pastor has taken an entirely different approach. He has not taken on political issues and has described himself as being politically neutral. And this second pastor, he begins to tell the story of how he has met with several people in his office, and, and, and many of them are wanting to know where the pastor stands on these political issues. And he recalls in this, um, in this article uh, being confronted by two members who were long-serving members in his congregation who he loved very deeply. And they were there on that particular day to confront him about taking what they call the easy way out from not taking a side on the debates that are fracturing much of American culture and specifically Christian churches. And the pastor in the article says this, quote, I remember telling them, that is this couple who have confronted him about his political neutrality, that this is the harder thing to do. Being neutral is the harder thing to do, and that is what I'm doing, the pastor says. This is actually how you lose people, he told them. How you gain people is you pick a tribe, you raise the flag, and you're really loud about it. That's how you gain a bunch of numbers, he said. That is too easy to do, he said to them. And it cheapens the gospel. My dear friends, here at Parkside Green, I want you to know that while I would describe myself as politically homeless and not really having a side, so to speak, I do have convictions regarding politics, but as the pastor at Parkside Green, it is my objective to steal language from this pastor to not plant a flag on the left and to not plant a flag on the right, but rather to plant a flag in the scriptures. And the reason we do that is because when we plant our flag in the scriptures, we routinely read of how Jesus Christ 
was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. When we plant our flag in the Scriptures, whether we are in the Old Testament or the New, in the Gospels or the Epistles, we will constantly be reminded that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that on the third day, Jesus rose again by the power of God. And when we plant our flags in the Scriptures, we are reminded of the hope that we have in Him. That is why every Sunday morning, when I stand behind this desk, I, I will oftentimes begin by some type of introduction of myself and greeting to you. But then I'm oftentimes made fun of, oftentimes in my own home, for saying the same thing. What I do not say is I would like to invite you to turn with me to the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal. I do not say I would like to draw your attention to the projectors to watch cable news. What, what do I say? I would like to invite you to turn with me in the Bible too. And I'm doing that not because I believe in tradition, although I do appreciate tradition. I'm doing that to plant the flag. To plant the flag in the scriptures. And friends, when we plant our flag in the scriptures, we will from time to time be confronted with some very uncomfortable, what we might view as uncomfortable truths. And this morning, as we look to the Scripture, we are going to learn how we ought to not only conduct ourselves in this fallen world, but the Scriptures will inform us on how we ought to reply to and, and have a relationship with our civil authority. So with that as our extra long intro, I want to draw your attention to two headings, both headings coming directly from the text. First of all, we will note to keep your conduct, and secondly, we will note be subject to. Both of these headings not only come from the text, but they're actually the application or the command that is found in verses 12 and in verses 13. We begin by first of all noting to keep your conduct. Verse 12, once again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and praise God and glorify God on the day of visitation. For those of you who were with us last week, you'll remember that we took a, the entire sermon to talk about verse 11, whereby as sojourners and exiles, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against our soul. And in this verse, really what Peter is doing is he is bridging what he has already stated in the opening chapter and a half. And he's taking us from the introduction of the letter to the body of the letter. And he is connecting uh, how we live to who we are. And because we are who we are, we ought to live in light of that. And that is precisely uh, what Peter is on about here. He, he began in verse 11 to, by saying what he said about abstaining the flesh, which is oftentimes uh, internal, this internal battle that is going on with the soul. But then he now moves to the external as to how Christians are to live in a fallen and a broken world. And there's something very evangelistic about what is stated 
and verse 12. And what we'll note is that it's not so much what Christians have to say, but rather how Christians live their life. And what is fascinating in verse 12 is that Peter is at least tipping his hand to the context of his audience, that there were indeed unbelievers speaking against the Christians as quote-unquote evildoers. And what the experts will say and what, uh, what historians will say is that during Nero's rule, the life for Christians was exceptionally hard. Christians understood they were not to have any idols, and therefore they would not worship any local idols. And that was a very difficult thing, uh, culturally speaking, because if there was something wrong in society, there was oftentimes tied to the worship of an idol and perhaps not pleasing uh, a, a local god. And the Christians would then be blamed for participate, not participating in worship, thus having uh, something like a famine. Christians' lives were hard because of Nero himself. The scholars suggest that he would write laws to intentionally make the life of Christians relatively hard. And when we look back on history to Peter's day, it seems as though life was hard for Christians. But Peter is prepared to strike back, and he is speaking to them about their conduct. Keep your conduct. That word conduct is one of Peter's favorite words that he uses to address uh, the Christian's life and the way that a Christian will live in, uh, in, the, uh, in the world, in the public sector, if you like. Keep your life among the Gentiles honorable. This word Gentiles is again a word that Peter will borrow from Israel is oftentimes used in the Old Testament to describe people who were not Jews by nature. And here, uh, Peter applies that to the unbelieving world. Keep your life among the unbelieving world honorable. What an interesting thing for Peter to say. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This word honorable, it is alternatively translated, I believe, in the NIV, to live such good lives among the Gentiles. This idea of honorable, it could alternatively uh, mean beautiful. It could alternatively mean attractive. In other words, Peter is saying, keep your life beautiful among the Gentiles. And what Peter is not saying is that we should all go to the local mall and get the fanciest of clothes. No, rather he is talking about the way in which we live our life. Our life should be dignified. It should be beautiful by good works. There is this connection in verse 12 that is apparent. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, and at the end of verse 12, that they may see your good deeds. There is this direct connection between honorable conduct and the actual doing good, of, of doing the good things that uh, God has prepared for us. This keeps in step with the rest of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 states that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus chapter 2, verse 7 
It reads, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, declares that Jesus redeemed us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The honorable life, the beautiful Christian life, is rooted in good works. And the reason why we do good works, the reason why the Christian has this beautiful conduct of good works is so that, in verse 12, there's this purpose clause, so that those Gentiles, the unbelieving world who accuse you of being evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's almost as if Peter has has taken good notes at the Sermon on the Mount, whereby Jesus would say uh, to those who were gathered to let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they may give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter says, conduct yourselves in this way so that when people see you, they see the good works. Peter does not say silence the worldly accuser with verbal fights, but good deeds. He does not say uh, that we should have a campaign of self-defense. No, he says, conduct yourself in this world with beautiful, good works. So that when someone says something about you. Your body of work will contradict such a false accusation. Now, as we consider this for ourselves, of keeping our conduct in the world honorable, uh, we should consider uh, three things, really. Uh, This instruction from Peter, it, 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 it almost reminds us of three things. The first is this, that the world is watching. The world is watching believers. They're watching you if you are indeed in Christ. They are watching you, and they are watching who you love. They're watching how you love. They're even watching when you love. The world is watching who and when and how we serve. They're watching what we say. The unbelieving world is watching what we post on social media. The unbelieving world is watching. They're watching our conduct. This this, uh, verse should also remind us that we can, from time to time, expect hostility from those who don't believe. We can expect, from time to time, hostility from some who do not believe. Not everybody's going to love what we say. Not everyone's going to love what we do. And those who are in opposition to Christ and his followers, they might say evil things about us and accuse us of doing things that are not true. So we should anticipate, as Paul would write to Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Thirdly and finally, this instruction from Peter should remind us that a Christian life well lived is a profound tool in evangelism. A Christian life well-lived is a profound tool in evangelism. 
The end of verse 12 uh, talks about how, uh, how there will be th these Gentiles glorifying God on the day of visitation. Now, there are some really strong commentators, Christian men and women, who would suggest that the day of visitation is the day in which an unbeliever has their, their eyes open. The Holy Spirit opens their eyes, God visits them, and as a result, they glorify God. Others would say that this is in the end when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is uh, Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they are those who have that view and those who have the former view. They're both very uh, God-fearing, Christ-worshiping, Christian people. They just have a different take. And quite frankly, I could be convinced of either take. But all of that to say a Christian life well-lived is a profound tool in evangelism. How you live in the community, how you go to work, how you go to school and, uh, and live your life with honorable conduct, well, it is a profound tool to the unbelieving world. Peter says, keep your conduct. But secondly, Peter says, be subject to. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, if you were with us last time, you will remember that in verse 11, Peter sort of gave this description and the reality of his audience's circumstances that they were sojourners and exiles, meaning that they didn't necessarily belong to this world. To put it another way, Christians are resident aliens and visiting foreigners. Uh, to put it away in the way of Paul, the believer's citizenship is in heaven. And, and what might happen is those of us who believe our citizenship is in heaven and that Jesus is Lord and that his word is ultimate, what might, what might happen is that we might think that we get a pass on submitting to earthly authority. When in actual fact, what, 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 what God is saying through Peter is a way in which we identify as members of the citizenship in heaven is we actually submit to our earthly authority. And that is precisely what Peter is arguing for. He is, he's not just saying be subject to, he's actually saying literally, submit yourselves. Submit yourself. That's, and this idea of submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution is written in the middle voice, thus believers are summoned to submit voluntarily to uh, authority that is around us, at least in this context. Let's be honest, the word submit is a very ugly word in modern day vernacular. Oftentimes when we talk about submission here in the 21st century, we're talking about people who have been dominated or even humiliated. Even in certain forms of of uh, wrestling or MMA or whatever type of combative uh, athletic uh, thing there might be, a wrestler or a fighter will submit someone, meaning that they're on the verge of choking them out. They have total control of them. If they don't tap out, 
surely there will be a long-term permanent injury. But the word submit here doesn't have such sharply negative connotations, not in the biblical language and not in biblical times. Submit does carry with it the idea that someone is in th- who is in authority can give or- orders that others ought to follow. But we do so voluntarily, not in a forceful way. Submit can actually be a milder term than to obey. And therefore, Peter gives a command for the Christians to which he writes to submit themselves. And who, are, and who exactly are they to submit themselves to? Well, he says, doesn't he, to every human institution. That word every is haunting. The word human, institution, is also unique. I think of all of the things that Peter could have said. He could have said, be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every perfect institution. And if he would have said that, that would have sort of let us off the hook. We could have got around this. Well, see, it's not perfect. The government's far from perfect. But that's, that's not what he says. He also could have said every Christian institution. But he doesn't. Human institution. It sort of conjures up this idea of brokenness, of, of fallen institutions. And the word institution is interestingly uh, transcribed here in our English Bibles. This Greek word actually means uh, creatures, to submit to every creature, every human creature. But I think, yeah, I think those who uh, transcribe the Bible, they were interested in, in the context. And clearly we are in this governmental idea of emperors and governors. So the word institution, it's almost as if Peter is saying, uh, submit yourself to the human institution of your government. And this is, of course, what he is saying. This is not, um, this is not outside of what the rest of Scripture says. As a matter of fact, as you re- read the New Testament, you will routinely see authors giving such ethical exhortations, such as, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That is what Paul writes in Romans 13.1. In Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Ah, so Peter is putting it together. Submission, I'm sorry, Paul was putting it together in Titus. Submission to authorities and doing good work. Somehow it all works together. Submit, says Peter. And it's interesting that he uses the word emperor. Emperor and governors. Governors, of course, would have been those who were sent by the emperor to have local governments. They would indeed enforce the law, and they are supposed to praise those who do good. Now, clearly, governors and those who are a part of local government, they don't do that perfectly. He didn't say they have to do it perfectly. But what is perhaps most striking is that he says this um, at all, to submit to governors to submit to the emperor as supreme. Now, wait a minute. We might protest. Surely this command does not transcend time. If Peter would have known 
about our modern America where so many ungodly people are being elected into office and they are making ungodly laws if he had only known. He never would have said this. But let's bear in mind who Peter is writing about. The emperor at the time of Peter's writing was Nero. And Nero was known for his vanity, for his cruelty, for his hostility, especially towards Christians. He persecuted the Christian church ferociously. It is recorded in history that Nero fed Christians to wild beasts just for entertainment purposes. This same Nero is the same guy who would dip Christians in tar and pitch and light them on fire in his backyard while he's entertaining guests. And Peter, he says, submit to this man. And again, we want to protest and say, well, now there's no way he could have he could have meant this, not in democracies. It is tempting to balk at Peter's command, especially if our candidate lost the vote. But everyone is called to this, and we're not calling it. We admit it is hard from time to time. We must not miss the motivation found in verse 13. Submit for the Lord's sake. This might not be easy. I don't think Peter thought this was going to be well received, but he invokes the glory of God, the very sake of Jesus. Be subject for the sake of Jesus Christ to your leader, the emperor or to governors. It's amazing what he says here. Be subject to. Now, of course, there are some of us who are saying, yeah, what about? And there are a lot of whatabouts, right? There's a ton of whatabouts. And, and when we read in the Bible, there are moments where Christians, where the people of God actually participate in what we might call civil disobedience. And that oftentimes is the case when the demands of society threaten to override the demands of the Lord. The Christian is always in principle ready to rebel, ready to say no in the face of something like a wicked command. It was Peter and the other apostles who said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. We affirm that. But what is, I think, what makes my mind sort of explode is that Peter doesn't say that here. He doesn't create a way out for believers in Asia Minor. He just swings and says, you know what? You've got to be subject. You have to submit to the emperor and the governors. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And as we understand this verse in its context, uh, well, we will understand that it is Christians who are being persecuted, and it is Christians who are called to do good within the context of actually, of actually submitting to the emperor as supreme. What an incredible command. What a difficult command. I wonder if Peter regretted writing this. I wonder if he regretted it. 
Because the irony of what Peter says here is that church history teaches, and the church fathers are unanimous in claiming, that Peter died in Rome at the hands of the emperor. I don't think he regretted saying it. I actually think he was comforted by the words. Because not only does he say this, but, but if you allow your eye to go down to verse uh, 21 of the same chapter, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What well, you might think is Peter is being led to literally his own crucifixion. What is he trying to remember? He's trying to remember Christ, who according to verse 22, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, there's great injustice taking place. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, look to Christ who himself submitted to Pontius Pilate and Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and Christ would die. And Peter here uses Christ as the example. And he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I don't think he regretted these words. I think these words brought him comfort. And I guess the question for us today as we consider verses 13 and 14 is what informs our relationship with civil authorities? Let me walk that back. Who informs our relationship with civil authorities? It very well could be that we are allowing ourselves to hear for hours on end during the day on talk radio, and then sitting down in front of the TV at night to turn on our favorite cable news program. It could very well be, my brother or sister in Christ, that we are allowing that person or those people to inform our relationship with our civil authorities. Let me walk it back one more time and ask it differently. I don't know if you've ever been on an airplane where the pilot actually missed the runway. It's happened to me twice. One time I thought I was going to die. The other time I was sleeping. So let's, let's hit this runway a third time. Is God informing your relationship with the civil authorities? Just think about it. I, my... my my defense is, is, if you want to come at me, I'll just put, like, hey, show me something different. Friends, we are planting our flags in the scripture. We're planting the flag there. So may God help us to submit when appropriate, when not breaking God's commands. May God help us to submit to every human institution. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we recognize these words to be from you.
We recognize that our conduct among the unbelieving world is not always honorable. It is not always Christ-centered. We think of Jesus who would heal on the Sabbath and would be spoken against as an evildoer, but yet he did that good deed to the glory of you. We pray that we would follow in his footsteps by living honorable lives among the unbelieving world and We pray that people would see our good works. And when they see our good works, I pray that they would see our good God. And Lord, when we think about these verses in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, help us not to trip over them in disappointment, but to embrace them as coming from you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to to remember at least to respect those who are elected into our governmental offices and to apply even what Paul said, to pray for them. And so, Lord, with that in mind, we do pray for our elected officials here in America. The pressures that they face, we cannot even begin to comprehend. And Lord, we know that if they would seek wisdom from above, you would give it. Lord, we ultimately pray for uh, those who are over us, that they would come to know your son, Jesus, as their Savior. And Lord, I pray that as an overflow of knowing Christ, they would govern. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to be like Christ. And to even, when, uh, even when we are called to suffer, that we would follow in the footsteps of your son Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Lord, may the word be our guide, and may the word be our guard. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.